The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present this recording from Saver 2013 in New York City. This recording is from Saturday, June 15th. Breaking Down the Pale Ale, featuring Christopher Gallant and Damian Brown from Bronx Brewery. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Carolyn Smigalski, the Beer Fox. I'm the editor of Beer and Brewing at Bella Online, the voice of women on the internet. I also write about society, culture, and health at beerlovers.com. I am a columnist and a features writer at the Beer Connoisseur magazine, Philly Beer Scene, and a lot of other beer magazines across the nation. I'm also the uh, founder of the Philly Beer Geek competition where we just gave the winner $5,000 worth of prizes and a lot of other perks for having knowledge and passion about beer. So you guys being here tonight, you're going to see some people here who have knowledge and passion. I want to thank you all for attending SAVER and for attending this salon. SAVER is brought to you by the Brewers Association, which is the trade association for craft brewers nationwide. I want to remind you to please turn off your cell phones during this salon. I want to also thank our many supporters, including Manhattan Beer Distributors and Spiegelow, who have uh, supported this salon. And these salons, I want to remind you, are being recorded by craftbeerradio.com and they will be available on craftbeer.com shortly after the event. Our presentation this evening is Breaking Down the Pale Ale, featuring Chris Gallant and Damian Brown. Now what happens when a guy from MIT partners with a guy from Yale? They start a brewing company, naturally, right? Chris Gallant and Damian Brown co-founded the Bronx Brewery and launched their flagship beer, Bronx Pale Ale, in August of 2011. Chris is general manager and focuses on overall strategy. He has a long history in the food and beverage industry, including work as an independent marketing, sales, and business development consultant for Heineken International. He loves beer, particularly pale ale, and leads the Bronx Brewery in creating the best pale ales in America. Damian Brown is the head brewer at the Bronx Brewery and is the one responsible for brewing those great pale ales. The over he oversees brewing operations, management of raw materials, production packaging, logistics, all that jazz. So they wear a lot of hats. He's been awarded the prestigious diploma in brewing by the UK-based Institute of Brewing and Distilling. And he is a graduate of the Master's Brewer Program at UC Davis in California. Please welcome Chris Gallant and Damian Brown. Thank you. Thank you very much for the, the nice introduction. Um, I feel like it sounds a lot fancier than we actually are. If you guys could see the state of the office that we're building out, um, we would not be that fancy. So uh, my name is Chris. This is Damien. Uh, as she mentioned, we started the brewery in 2011. 
and we really started it with an idea of making the beer that, that we like most and really staying in that category, which is pale ales. So tonight, what we want to do for you is a couple of things. Um, we want to talk about the history of the pale ale, why it came, where it came from, you know, how it started in the U.S., why it's important to us, and why, why we brew it. And then what we're going to do is we're going to actually taste all the pale ales that we have out right now. So we'll try our, um, our Bronx Pale Ale, which you guys have in front of you right now. It's our flagship. It's a big, malty, dry hop pale ale. Um, big English backbone of the, of the malts and some traditional West Coast American hops. We'll try our Belgian Pale Ale, which was our spring seasonal. And we'll also have our summer Pale Ale. The, um, the last thing we're going to have, we're actually really excited to have here tonight for you guys, which is our gin barrel aged pale ale. Um, that is, uh, we only made 200 bottles of it. We've got 12 of them here, so we're pretty excited to try it. Um, so thank you again for coming. Thank you for say, taking some time away from trying great beers to, to hear us talk. So as we think about the, um, the pale ale and, and where it came from, um, I think it makes a lot of sense to start with where hops came from because hops add a lot of the predominant flavors uh, that you think about in a pale ale and a lot of the characteristics. So if you think about hops, hops originated in China, migrated westward, um, wound up in Central and Eastern Europe somewhere around the 8th century, and in Germany started being used to bitter beer in about the 11th century. Uh, the pale ale is obviously not from Germany, it's, it's mostly from England, and the, the hops took a little while to cross the English Channel. They went with some Dutch farmers and they started being cultivated in southeast England uh, somewhere around the fifth century. And there's a lot of, if you read pale ale history books, does anybody else read pale ale history books? No? <laughs> all right. So if, um, if you read those books, there's all sorts of rumors about Henry VIII banning the use of hops you know, from all brewers in England. And, and while that, that's a heated debate and whether that's actually true is unclear, but, but what is true and what you do see is that a lot of municipalities started to define ale and then define something called beer. And ale was, uh, was bitter with something called Groot, a lot of different uh, herbs and spices. Uh, and hops were relegated to something called beer. And over the next couple of centuries, you see this category of beer really start to grow. Um, and the category of ale in England start to shrink. And the reason for that is twofold. One, those early ales and early beers were, had this really cloying sweetness um, uh, from the malts that they used and the hops were much, much better at actually balancing out that sweetness. And the second reason is the dollar, or the shilling. Uh, hops, as you probably know, are natural preservatives, so uh, less spoilage equals more profit for pubs and for bars. Um, so what you see over the 16th, 17th, uh, 18th century is beer, this category of beer, this really hopped, uh, bitter beer, start to take over. Um, but it's not pale ales yet, it's, it's porters. Um, pale ales were being made mostly for export up north in Burton, uh, near the coal mines, because you needed the coke to, to make those pale malts. But porter, you know, heavily, you know, relatively heavily hopped, darker beer, takes over in, in UK. And that's, that's the most popular beer. And then right around the turn of, of the 19th century is what we like to call the pale ale Big Bang. So a whole bunch of things came together and, and converged to really make that the beer of choice in England. So first was the, the export markets. They started to change. So the Napoleonic Wars started to happen, uh, or happened. Um, 
so trading uh, to Russia and a lot of the Baltic countries are put on hold. And then trade restrictions afterwards, you know, kept a lot of that trading on hold. And why that's important is because a lot of those brewers in Burton that were making those beers for, um, for those markets now had a ton of capacity. Okay. So the second thing that happened also had to deal with export. So the East India Trading Company had a monopoly on trade with India. And they had been using one brewer, George Hodgson, to, to make their pale ales to export to India. And mostly because he offered them great credit terms. Um, and they lost their monopoly. So when they lost that monopoly, uh, what happens now is you have all these other exporters talking to all these other brewers who, oh, by the way, have all this capacity, and they start producing a ton of pale ale. So pale ale, all of a sudden, there's, a, there's just a ton of it in the Burton area in that market. And then what you see, uh, 1830s, the Derby to Birmingham railway was complete. And that provided a link to Birmingham from Burton, because it went right through the city. And it provided a link to Liverpool, Manchester, all the big cities. So now you've got an easy way to transport the pale ale. And, and then the last thing that happened is the Industrial Revolution. Right? So around the same time, you have all these cities with all these people moving into them, having a steady income from factories, becoming more middle class, and beer consumption goes. It goes up from about 35 gallons per capita in the beginning part of the 19th century to about 50 gallons per capita in, in the second half. So people are drinking a ton more beer. Um, and does, is anyone here a home brewer? All right. You guys know how much stuff home brewing takes up, right? So when you move from, from the farm into the city, guess what goes? Your home brewing stuff. So people stop making their own beer and started purchasing commercially made beer. So you've got a ton of extra pale ale being made, an easy way to get it down to, to the big markets, and then people really wanting it. So that, that's sort of how pale ale really came about. And you see companies like Bass, who used to be a porter producer, now making three quarters of their beer in, in, uh, as pale ales by the mid part of the century. And pale ale became the predominant drink in, in England. All right, but that's, that's a little bit away. How did it get here to the United States? Why is it important here? Well, right, right around the same time, that all these changes are happening in England, a lot, of, a lot of similar changes are happening in the US, right? You have the Industrial Revolution, people drinking more beer, you have railways being built, but there's really there's two big differences that happen. Uh, the first is a, a big influx of German immigrants with pale lagers, and they, they bring those lagers with them, and there's a real demand for that. And the, and the second thing that you see is those railways are going where? They're going south and west to warmer climates, and people start creating this demand for light, pale lagers. And ales, including pale ales, the, the consumption starts to die off. And by the time Prohibition comes around, very few are left, the companies are left making pale ales. Prohibition hits, obviously ends, and not all lot come back until you know, 40 years later, and you start to see companies like um, Anchor Steam and Sierra Nevada popping up and starting to make these flavorful beers, a lot of them pale ales. And that's really when the story starts to begin for pale ales in America. Um, and that's, you know, that's when the love affair that Americans have with hops really started to begin. And this, is, um, and this is why it's so important to us. I mean, pale ales and IPAs are the number one and number two types of craft beer consumed by Americans. Um, this, this is how the U.S. is starting to become known for its beer. Yes, there's still a couple of those big companies that make those really light lagers. Um, but, but pale ales is what America is starting to be known for. And it's so important to us, 
you know, when Jamie and I grew up, this was, you know, this was the beer that everyone consumed, right? This was the beer that we knew. Pale ales were, you know, were the, the biggest thing. So for us, it was just a natural fit to, to create a company centered around this beer that we love so much. Um, but that, that's enough about boring history. Onto some more interesting things, trying the beer. Uh, Damien's gonna walk you through all the tastings. Um, we're happy to take on any questions you guys have now or at the end, uh, but, but thank you again for coming. All right. So hello, everybody. Uh, my name again is Damien, and I am the brewer here uh, at the Bronx Brewery. And here to talk a bit about uh, why we chose to make only pale ales, what that means for our company, uh, and then step you through a tasting of four beers uh, and some of the raw materials that go into them. So I think my first point to you all would be that the concept these days of a pale ale is a pretty wide one. Um, I think it's closer, more appropriate to say it's a family of styles. If you look at the, the Brewers Association's latest style guidelines, for example, there's at least 10 styles that have the words pale ale in the name. And that doesn't include a couple beers that, like a rye, rye ale or an American style black ale that are marketed and, and manufactured as pale ales. So it's no easy task to define what a pale ale is. Um, I think that same style guideline acknowledges that you know, it's very difficult to consistently align analytical data with perceived character, and it's also very difficult to align written beer descriptions with analytical data and perceived character. So I think in general, though, people more or less have a, a concept or an understanding of what a pale ale is. It's, it's sort of like porn. You know it when you see it. And, you know, for me, at least, that general concept is moderate. So medium-bodied medium hopped, medium maltiness, and moderate fruity ester flavor and aroma. So balance, for the most part, explains why we chose to launch our company with a single beer, uh, the beer that you guys just had. And, you know, we wanted to focus on this family of styles. And, you know, some of the beers, like our black pale ale that we, we release in the winter, isn't pale. Uh, but it also isn't an IPA, and you see a ton of black IPAs out there. It's less, less bitter, less alcoholic, less hoppy. And so we call it a black pale ale. And, you know, uh, for us, again, it's, it's part of that family of styles because it's balanced and because it, it uh, is moderate and balanced in most aspects. So... Um, Wanted to start with a quick tasting of our flagship beer, uh, which is the Bronx Pale Ale. You guys have that all in front of you. And comes in at 6.3% ABV. And this is available year-round. It's been paired here. I don't know if you guys have had a chance to try it, but it's been paired with uh, chicken ricotta meatballs. Uh, we're way in the back, so uh, if you haven't had them yet, come by and find us and try it with the meatballs. Um, but I basically describe it as English malts meet West Coast hops. And, um, you yeah, know, it's a, a, a deep amber pale ale, uh, very brilliant. Um, some citrus and floral notes. And then, a, you know, gentle hot bitterness up front. And it, it transitions nicely into some very big English malt aspects. Nutty, bready, biscuity, 
uh, caramel notes without being too sweet. Uh, moderate mouthfeels, carbonated, it's about two and a half volumes. And um, yeah, so I think what, in terms of what went into designing this beer, again, it was about balance um, between malt and hop flavors, something that was easy to drink. And we come up with this flavor profile and work backwards. We identify raw materials and processes that can come together to make this a reality. And so what you have in front of you is the raw materials, water and yeast. Uh, yeast isn't raw material, but water aside, uh, what goes into the beer. Um, and in terms of the grain bill, there's five malts. Um, Mutton's Maris Otter is one of them, probably the upper left-hand corner. And this is a, uh, it's about 70% 70, 70 of the grain bill for this beer. And uh, it's a very, you know, traditional, well-modified British malt. Uh, lends the beer the bulk of its fermentables. And has a trademark rich, bready, uh, nutty character. So you're welcome to try some of them. I think they're delicious. Just pop a few in your mouth and chew. Um, and over the course of the different malts, you'll, you'll get a sense, I think, or I hope, of uh, what they each contribute in terms of uh, flavor and character. You can get a good sense of that just by eating them, tasting the malt. So that's our base malt. And then uh, the next uh, malt we'll talk about is uh, a Kerr Munich malt. It's a German malt from Weirman. And this lends the beer the bulk of its color. You can tell it's a, a bit more heavily kilned and uh, gives it uh, much of the body and a lot of the unfermentable dextrins that uh, you know, lend the beer that uh, sweet uh, caramel sweetness at the finish. And then there's three other American malts uh, from Brees, Victory, Vienna, and Aromatic. And those basically lend uh, a number of uh, biscuity, uh, bready malt flavors, and you're welcome to sample those as well. You do have the hops. Yeah, don't eat them. <laughs> they don't taste good. So, so those are the five malts, and uh, I hope that when you eat them, you can pull out some of the flavors, uh, at least, in what you're drinking. Two hops in this beer. Uh, very traditional West Coast American hops, Centennial and Cascade. I'm sure all of the homebrewers here have used them and probably terribly bored of them at this point. But um, Centennial, we use, um, we have four kettle editions of this hop. And then we also dry hop with it. Um, we use pelletized hops in the kettle and leaf and pellet hops in the dry hop, depending on the brew house we're using. And um, yeah, gives the beer, um, you know, trademark piney citrus flavors. Um, I would suggest crumbling up the pellets uh, to get, uh, to release some of the aroma. The other hop in front of you is Cascade, uh, another very popular U.S. variety. Um, very citrus, grapefruit, uh, grapefruity aroma. So that we use three times in the kettle and also dry hop with. So that's our pale ale. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, we're going to start now pouring samples of our spring seasonal, which is a Belgian pale ale. So this beer comes in at 6.7% ABV, so a bit uh, higher in alcohol 
than the last one. Uh, it's been paired here with a goat cheese cheesecake uh, with almost like a Cracker Jack kind of topping on it. And it was, uh, I thought, a, a, a very well done pairing. So a quick look at this beer, a quick smell, a quick taste of this beer will let you know that it uses drastically different malts, hops, and yeast, and yet still falls within this pale ale category, this family of styles. In terms of the color, it's a golden, you know, straw-colored beer. Uh, it is unfiltered, which is, I think, pretty obvious looking at the beer. Um, a lot of phenolic notes. Uh, there's a subtle smokiness to it, derived from the yeast. There's three strains of yeast that go into this beer, by the way. Two Trappist and a Belgian ale yeast. So there's no smoke malts. That, that smokiness is entirely derived from the yeast. Um, so yeah, very phenolic aroma. Uh, some subtle smokiness. And then I actually pick up uh, a good amount of tangerine and clementine notes towards the end. In terms of the raw materials, so you have in front of you all the raw materials for the pale ale. The raw materials for the Belgian, the summer, are up here on this table in buckets. You're welcome to come up and, and sample these malts and uh, smell the hops. Um, in terms of In terms of the grain bill for this beer, there's three malts. A Belgian Pilsner malt from Castle. It's a very light, thank you, Belgian base malt uh, with a strong, sweet malt flavor. Uh, there is a, a German Vienna malt from Weirman. And then there's also 2% uh, of the grain bill is a biscuit malt from Castle, which is a pretty unique malt. It's uh, lightly kilned and then it's torrified. Uh, so it gelatinizes uh, the starches in the endosperm. So that's what gives the beer the warm, bready, toasty notes. Now we also, being a Belgian, we, we use about 3% of the weight of the grain bill in candy sugar. So we've got some candy sugar up here you guys can take a look at and, and taste. Um, and what that does, it provides fermentables. It doesn't contribute much in terms of the body or other flavor characteristics, but it gives the beer fermentables and also alters the way that the yeast uh, metabolizes. So that's, uh, that's a key aspect of using Belgian candy sugar. There's a single hop in this beer called Sterling. It's a U.S. hop, um, four kettle editions of it. It's uh, slightly spicy uh, and very herbal. And as I mentioned, three strains of yeast. So that's our Belgian. Any questions so far? Three strains, yep. Two Trappist ale strains and a Belgian ale. All right, so I guess we'll start pouring, if we could, the summer. No, malt. Yeah, proteins in the malt. 
All right, so Summer Pale Ale, hopefully being poured soon. Uh, this is uh, our lightest beer. Comes in at 5.2%. Um, and, um, you know, light, lighter in body. Lighter in body, lighter in alcohol, uh, lighter in color. And uh, we think great for the hot summer days here in the city. So, um, we'll wait to talk about it until you guys have in front of you. At least some of you. Any other questions on the Paleo or the Belgian while we're waiting? Nope. All at once, yep, up front pitched uh, at the start of fermentation. And we do ferment uh, at about 71 Fahrenheit, so it's slightly warm. We get a lot of that phenolic character from that. So the question, how many attempts did we uh, do before we came up with the final recipe for the beer? So it depends on each beer. Uh, the pale ale was probably close to a dozen. Uh, the rest of the beers, I think, uh, the Belgian, we did two pilots. The summer, we only did one pilot. Um, it just depends on what our schedule's like, how much time we have, and, you know, so... But the pilots we've all done very small. It's you know glorified home brewing, ten gallon batches, and then we scale it right up. Uh, we've been doing the the seasonals at, in uh, forty and eighty barrel batches. So, all right. So, the summer pale ale, five point two percent ABV, as I mentioned, and um, it's got a pretty interesting aroma. Uh, we actually use an experimental hop with this beer. Um, for those interested, it's from Hop Steiner, and it's called 04190. And it's kind of a cool name. Derived from Fuggle and Cascade hops, among other things. And has a, a bit of an earthy, uh, almost noble hop character to it, uh, as well as a bit of uh, lemon character. So I think it's a pretty interesting hop. Um, the beer itself, you know, slightly malty, but uh, very dry, crisp, refreshing. Uh, and then finishes with a, a bit of uh, lemon, a uh, subtle bit of lemon at the end. We actually infuse the beer with dried lemon peel uh, at the dry hop. So Eureka and Lisbon uh, lemon varieties. And it's about half of the poundage uh, we use uh, with the dry hops. So we just bag up the dried lemon peel and uh, throw it in the, in the conditioning tank. And there's, there's some of the dried lemon peel up here as well. So two malts. Uh, the base malt, which makes up about 80% of the grain bill for this beer, is, uh, is British. Uh, also from Muntins, one of my favorite maltsters. It's their extra pale. And it's a light, you know, moderately bready and biscuity English malt. The other malt is American uh, from Brees. It's called Mild Ashburn. And um, it gives it some subtle toast notes, but again, very, um, you know, light, um, both in color and uh, malt flavor aspect. The hops I mentioned, it's experimental. Three kettle additions, and then we dry hop with it, and I think it's a pretty, pretty interesting hop. 
And the yeast, uh, it's the same uh, strain of yeast we use for our uh, pale ale. Any questions on this beer? I think summer, summer beers are always kind of hard. You're walking a very fine line of being light and refreshing, uh, yet needing to give it some element of complexity so that craft beer drinkers like you guys don't, you know, laugh at us. So I hope you enjoy it. So no questions. All right. There we go in the back. So the pale ale, oh, the question is, uh, what, what uh, level of clarity are we seeking in our beers and what do we do in terms of filtering? So our pale ale, we filtered. Uh, you could tell that was very brilliant. Uh, that's the only beer that we filter. Um, so these are all unfiltered. Um, they sit in conditioning tanks uh, cold for about a week and a half. And, you know, they flock, the yeast flocculates relatively well. They're, they're not brilliant by any means, the Belgian particularly, but um, we enjoy that about the beer. The yeast adds uh, you know, uh, a lot of character to it. So. And what do you filter with? Uh, it's a DE filter okay. for the Palo. Okay. These also have a very dry feel to them, the last two I found. Is that because of the yeast? Um, so this is the same yeast as, the, uh, as our pale ale. has more to do with the mashing regimen that we follow for this beer. Um, so, yeah. has more to do with the way that we, we mash the, the malt than, than the yeast itself. It's the same yeast. What's up? Yeah. Um, so you can adjust, essentially, the, the way that you uh, get extract and the types of extract that you get from your malts by adjusting the temperature predominantly at which you, you mash. The enzymes that are responsible for breaking down proteins and carbohydrates from the malt uh, are temperature sensitive. And so manipulating those temperatures allows you to you know, increase the amount of fermentables, uh, and, and or increase the amount of extract that you get from the beer. There's sort of a trade-off. Uh, the higher the temperature, generally, the more uh, extract you're able to get. Conversely, it's uh, less fermentable, so your beer retains more of the, the sweetness, more of the residual dextrins that the yeast can't metabolize. So it's more a mashing aspect than, than yeast, at least for these two beers. Any other questions on the summer? Question in the back. I, I didn't hear that, sorry. <laughs> so the question was, what did my parents say when I told them I wanted to open a brewery? Uh, they, yeah, I think they were happy for me. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, they liked the beer, so I think that was... That always helps. If you open a brewery and they don't like the beer, you're, you know, that's not good. They have to drink it every time I go home for holidays and stuff. So um, they've been supportive. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so so uh, all the investors in our company are basically our family members. So <laughs> because no, no legitimate investor would give us money. So that's uh, hopefully that they liked it enough. 
Yeah, they probably fell back into a corner. So probably weren't happy, actually, now that I think about it. We asked, ev we asked every friend we had to, uh, to donate a little bit, not donate, to invest a little bit, so multiple times. All right, so that was our summer pale ale, and we will now be pouring our gin barrel-aged Bronx pale ale for all of you. Uh, I would suggest, yeah, rinsing the glass. So a bit about our barrel-aging program at the brewery. Um, for us, uh, what we've tried to do is get our hands on as many different types of barrels as possible and age all of our beers in them. With the thought really being that we want we wanted to be able to demonstrate to people the impact that the different barrel types have on the same beer, the same base beer. So we've aged our beer in bourbon barrels, rye whiskey barrels, uh, Pinot Noir barrels, Chardonnay barrels, Zinfandel barrels, Mezcal, tequila, rum, uh, gin. And some of those we choose to inoculate wild yeast and bacteria. Some of them we, we don't. Uh, and it's a lot of fun tracking the progress of the beer in the barrel. You know, every couple weeks, every couple months going down and pulling samples and seeing how it's maturing, what flavors it's picking up. Um, so it's a lot of fun. This particular uh, beer, again, it's our pale ale, the first beer that you had, aged in gin barrels. And we got the barrels. Not a whole lot of distilleries are putting their gin in wood, but we got some barrels from uh, Corsair Artisan Distilleries down in uh, Bowling Green, Kentucky. And interestingly enough, the barrels were originally rum barrels. So they had rum in them. They ended up putting their gin into the barrels and then uh, shipped them up to New York for us. And... Um, I think you'll be able to pull, pull out that it was both a rum and then gin barrel when you taste it. Um, so a bit about this particular beer then. Um, I think strong notes of juniper on the nose. You get a lot of that gin character, the, the um, uh, other botanicals that they used in the gin. The hops are incredibly muted. So if you remember the first beer that you guys had, a lot of hop character, both aroma and, and flavor-wise, a lot of that has been muted. But the beer you know, retains a lot of that bready, nutty, caramely, biscuity, malt backbone. And then the beer finishes with some oak, some vanilla, and a lot of spice character from the rum. So I think it's pretty interesting. Uh, we'll throw our beer in pretty much any barrel. And whether we like it or not, we'll, you know, we'll release it. And if, you know, it's a thought exercise, if nothing else, uh, we think it's interesting for people to see what the barrels contribute to the beer. But I hope you enjoy it. Um, questions? If I heard you correctly, this is the first beer we drank aged gin barrels? Correct. For five months. The question, the question was... Yes. So the question and the answer is... This is, was this the first beer that they tasted, and how long was it aged? Yes, and five months. Any other questions? So, again, this is, the question is, which hops are in the beer? Uh, this, this is the same, the first beer that you had, so Cascade and Centennial. We didn't, uh, we dry hopped as normal, um, put the beer into the barrels at the end of conditioning, 
uh, without any additional hops. So. So the question, how many times can we reuse the barrels uh, for our purposes before we get rid of them? Um, good question. Uh, it's sort of, there's not really a good answer to it. Uh, I think it, the answer would be, it depends what you're looking to get out of the barrel. If we're looking at the barrel as a wood receptacle, a wood container that will hold beer, impart a bit of oak character to it, and play host to wild yeast and bacteria, can continue to use it indefinitely. If we're looking at the barrel as something, uh, a wooden container that will impart flavors from the previously held liquid, uh, we found, uh, you know, it, it, depending on the barrel, uh, one or two uses. So this was the first use we have since refilled, and, you know, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Yep, so part of, part of the, the barrel aging program is uh, you know, dealing with temperature and humidity to um, you know, counteract evaporation. And we regularly top up the barrels uh, to keep the, the surface area um, as small as possible. Uh, but yeah, there is a significant amount of evaporation. Any other questions on this beer, any of the beers, our company, Chris or I, Life? Yeah, that's a great question. The question is, what made us decide to stick with uh, making just pale ales as opposed to branching out? And I think for us, uh, we, like, we like to drink pale ales. Uh, I think it's also important as a new company to focus. So we'd rather do one thing or four things uh, well uh, rather than try to be you know, everything to everyone. And so for us, focus and um, just doing something we like. I think many, many of us did not realize there were so many different kinds of pale ale, so I'm a bit fascinated by the fact that you just do that. Um, I think that also barrel aging these has really expanded the style itself. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the difference between this beer and the first beer you had is pretty incredible and it's this this is the same beer correct correct yeah it's amazing yep <laughs> so the question uh with three strains of yeast do we ever consider uh pitching separately and then blending uh the three pitched warts um, no, we didn't. <laughs> he will now. <laughs> yeah, uh, it would, uh, it, I, it would certainly result in a different beer. So, yeah, um, I, I, uh, I think the difficult thing would be harvesting and propagating, uh, reusing that yeast. So that would be virtually impossible, uh, to do. So... 
uh, is a one-off thing. It certainly could be done, I think. Uh, we did seven, seven different batches of the Belgian over the course of the spring. And so we needed to continue keeping that yeast viable and harvest and reuse. And so that was the only real way of doing that for us. So what do you think? The, Did you good, like good these? Good task for, oh. a, for a home brewer, though. We have another, we have another question. Question is, how does aging in the gin barrel affect ABV? Do you work for TTB? Okay. Anyone, does anyone in the room work for TTB? All right. On the, we're on the radio, right? We are. Uh, so it affects ABV. Uh, not from uh, necessarily residual alcohol within the barrel, but more as a factor of the evaporation that we talked about earlier. So, um, yes, it does, it does affect the alcohol content. It does increase the alcohol content. It's a quite tricky thing to calculate. <laughs> you can, yes. But you don't look at it. So, so the question is, how does it work starting a, a brewery like, like ours in, in a city like New York where it's very expensive? So, so we're based in the South Bronx where real estate is, is cheaper than Manhattan, but it's still, still really expensive. And the way that it impacts growth for a small brewery is um, if you think about where you want to be in five years from now or 10 years from now, and you think about getting a, a building or a space with enough room to grow, to get a bigger brew house or to get... Uh, more fermentation tanks or, or something that you could grow into, it's not really feasible in, in a city like New York simply because um, you can't afford to be paying for space that you're not using at the moment. So it has to happen in step functions, right? You have to, right, we're building on a 20 barrel brew house right now or a new space. Um, we don't have a whole lot of room to grow there. We can grow some, but when we want to, you know, put in a 50 barrel brew house however many years down the line, we're going to have to move to a completely new space. So a lot of it is, is uh, just limits your, um, your ability to really plan, um, get a space to plan for the future. Yeah, so the question, what did we start with as a brew house? Um, we actually uh, had sort of an interesting uh, model where we bought two fermentation tanks and installed them at a brewery in Connecticut. And I would drive up still am driving up to Connecticut once a week to brew and transfer and package. So that's how we got off the ground. Um, by no means an easy way of doing it, but a less capital intensive way of doing it. And um, you know, it's worked out reasonably well for us. I'm sorry? The name of the brewery in Connecticut where we brew. Uh, it's called Cottrell Brewing Company in Pawkatuck. Are there any more questions? 
Okay, well, we'd like to thank Damian Brown and Chris Gallant. Come on. Come on, make them hear us in the other room. <laughs> we want to thank you for being here as our special guest here at Saver and at this salon. We want to also thank our supporters, especially Manhattan Beer Distributors and Spiegelow. And thank you for coming. Come on, give it another round of applause. Thanks, everybody. And make sure that you come up and take a look at all the different malts, hops, candy, sugar, and all the other ingredients that go into this beer. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2013, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Saver 2013, as well as all the salons from previous years at craftbeerradio.com slash saver or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.